Amen. When you're afraid to do something, it can make all the difference in the world if someone else goes before you, right? Whether that's jumping in a pool or climbing a rock wall or walking into a dark room. A few weeks ago, we took our kids to a reptile zoo here in Ottawa. And this zoo does shows for kids where they bring out different animals for you to see and to pet, to see up close. And one of the, the main attractions, it actually wasn't this time, but usually one of the main attractions that they have is this big old snake that they bring out. You know, the kind that if you saw it in the wild, you would run away as fast as you could. Or maybe if you saw it in Westboro. Same thing. But here's this zookeeper who knows how to handle the snake, carrying it out to you, showing you that it's, it's safe to come near, showing you how to pet it. And all of a sudden, what was unthinkable becomes doable, if not enjoyable even. Now, what if someone else went before you on something scary, but you still refused to do it? It would be a wasted opportunity, right? It's, you'd miss out on some kind of experience. I know that these days, FOMO, or the fear of missing out, runs deep and strong in people, but today I want to talk about squandering something, but squandering something a lot more important than just an experience. Not getting to, to pet a python is just unfortunate. But not getting to getting the goodness of God is tragic. If we fail to, to recognize or to take hold of the goodness of the Lord, we can miss everything. And that's not an exaggeration. And, and this is something that the people of the Lord have repeatedly had to learn the hard way. Last Sunday, we went way back in the story of God's people, all the way to Deuteronomy. You can go ahead and open up there now, if you haven't, to Deuteronomy chapter 1. And where we are in the, their story, they've just spent four decades wandering in the desert, where an entire generation of people had perished. And now Moses is speaking to all their kids and grandkids who had grown up since, and we wonder, about why were they there in the wilderness to begin with? Why waste 40 years so pointlessly? Why, why did God have them do that? Why didn't they just go straight to Canaan, the new homeland that God had promised them? That's what we're going to see today. What set them on this disastrous trajectory? As Moses began here, he's preaching throughout the book of Deuteronomy, and as he begins preaching, he starts by recounting their history, filling in the younger generation and what had actually happened with their parents. It was important that these young people learned of what happened, for as we all know from the beginning of history courses, right? whoever does not learn from the mistakes of the past is destined to repeat them. So, verse 1 said... These are the words that Moses spoke to all Israel beyond the Jordan in the wilderness. They were right on the edge of the promised land. And verse 5 told us that Moses was undertaking to explain the law that God had given to his people at Horeb or Sinai. But first, he reminded everyone about when the Lord had first told them to set out for the promised land. In verse 8, we saw what their marching orders had been. Look at, with, look at it with me in verse 8. See... I have set the land before you. Go in and take possession of the land that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give to them and to their offspring after them. Throughout the whole first half of chapter 1, time after time, we saw the Lord leading his people, guiding his people, giving them commands, leading them to, to these promised blessings that he had promised them, and then leading them through human leaders as well. But a key thing that I want you to remember, to recall here, is that before Moses went into the law, he framed it within God's grace. 
and what God had done for his people in the past and what he was promising to do for them in the future before he got to any kind of commands. We're going to see more of the same today. As God is holding out these potential blessings for his people. It's like I'm laying them out before you. Are you going to take them or not? Let's read from verse 18 together. It said, And I commanded you at that time all the things that you should do. Verse 19, new paragraph. Then we set out from Horeb and went through all that great and terrifying wilderness that you saw on the way to the hill country of the Amorites, as the Lord our God commanded us. And we came to Kadesh Barnea. And I said to you, you have come to the hill country of the Amorites, which the Lord our God is giving us. See, the Lord your God has set the land before you. Go up, take possession, as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has told you. Do not fear or be dismayed. So far, so good, right? They're following the Lord's lead. The wilderness, it says, was great and terrifying. It held untold dangers, but it was traversable. They could go through it. There, there were the the elements, the natural elements of the desert, the scorching sun, the dust storms, the flash floods, wild animals like lions would have been prowling around, scorpions and snakes were under feet, formidable enemies like the Amorites lived in the neighborhood, not to mention just the dangers of hunger and thirst. But they came through it. They went through with the Lord's help. And they came to a place called Kadesh Barnea. When they got there, Moses repeated the same command that he had given in verse 8 before they set out, except that he added one line to it. I don't know if you noticed. Six little words. Verse 21. See, the Lord your God has set the land before you. Go up, take possession as the Lord the God, your, the God of your fathers has told you. Do not fear or be dismayed. It's like you just passed through this great and terrifying wilderness. So don't fear now. We're going to see these words couldn't have been more timely. Continue reading, verse 22. Then all of you came near me and said, Let us send men before us, that they may explore the land for us, and bring us word again of the way by which we must go up, and of the cities into which we shall come. The thing seemed good to me, and I took twelve men from you, one from each tribe. And they turned and went up into the hill country and came to the valley of Eshcol and spied it out. And they took in their hands some of the fruit of the land and brought it down to us and brought us word again and said, It is a good land that the Lord our God is giving us. Now this plan they had to spy out the land, it was innocent enough. Moses agreed to it. When we read about the story in Numbers, it actually says that, the, that God directed them to do this. He told them to do this. And the men returned from their mission raving about how amazing the land was indeed. It's like, it is a good land that the Lord our God is giving us. The fruit that they brought back confirmed what they'd been told, that the land was lush and fertile, vegetation flourished, and milk and honey flowed. Now this should have greatly encouraged the Israelites. The report confirmed God's promises. Confirmed everything that God had been telling them up to this point. However, that's not all the spies reported. They said, yes, the land is good, but, but. It's like when someone asks, you want the good news or the bad news first? <laughs> Moses tells us the good news right here. But he leaves us hanging on the bad news. He doesn't tell us what that is yet. And so, as one scholar, Chris Wright, points out, the original command, go up and take possession of the land, has been reinforced by the encouragement. It is a good land that the Lord our God is giving us. This makes the people's next response all the more surprising and shocking. Verse 26. Yet you would not go up, but rebelled against the command of the Lord your God. 
and it only gets worse from there. Here's a lesson I think we are going to learn here. We can squander the goodness of the Lord through fearful disobedience. We can or we will squander the goodness of the Lord through fearful disobedience. Verse 26, we just read, describes their disobedience or their rebellion. They were unwilling. They would not go up. They refused. Ajith Fernando warns that fear becomes sin when it paralyzes us and prevents us from launching out in obedience to God. Fear becomes sin when we do this. Now, it's worth asking yourself, is fear preventing me from obeying God somewhere in my life? We're going to go deeper on that. But Israel's disobedience quickly bore more bad fruit, expressing itself in complaining. Verse 27, And then you murmured in your tents and said, Because the Lord hated us, he has brought us out of the land of Egypt to give us into the hand of the Amorites, to destroy us. Now, stop for a minute and just try to wrap your head around the lunacy of this complaint. Okay? The Israelites' exodus from Egypt was arguably God's greatest redemptive act prior to Christ. It was totally seen as their salvation, their redemption. God had saved them from slavery and from oppression in miraculous ways. And of course, we know that he did this out of sheer love and grace. Moses later says in Deuteronomy that it is because the Lord loves you that he redeemed you from Egypt. Yet here, they're concluding, because the Lord hated us, he has brought us out of the land of Egypt to give us into the hand of the Amorites, to destroy us. How could they ever think that God hated them? Well, it's because all of a sudden they didn't see it as salvation as much as a delayed death sentence. To borrow Tolkien's language, they were out of the frying pan and into the fire. They thought, God just delivered us to the doorstep of the Amorites. Jackie Hill Perry comments that once Israel left Egypt, they repeatedly accused God of bringing them into the wilderness to kill them. Ain't it crazy how unbelief works? It makes us think that God's deliverance is a death sentence. It makes us believe that our time as slaves were led by a better master. Some of us might to imagine that sin was a better master. We might look back fondly. We might think it was more enjoyable, more fun, more freeing. Could we? This was no small thing to utter complaints like this. God was their, their covenant head, their leader. This was effectively treason. It was inverting proof of God's love into proof of malevolence or hatred. What would ever cause them to, to turn on God like this? Well, it was actually the other side of the spy's report. The bad news side. Verse 28 said, Where are we going up? Or, or where can we go? They felt trapped, aimless. Where are we going up? Our brothers have made our hearts melt saying, the people are greater and taller than we. The cities are great and fortified up to heaven. And besides, we have seen the sons of the Anakim there. Moses had just told them not to fear or dismay. This was dismay. In fact, Moses had given them four commands back in verse 21. Go up, take possession, do not fear, do not dismay. By verse 28, they disobeyed all four. 
Now, their complaints may have been crazy, but from a human viewpoint, their fear was understandable. The spies came back saying, the land is great. Its inhabitants, though, they're great. They saw these huge, powerful, fortified cities filled with impressive specimens of people. They mentioned the, the sons of Anakim there. Those are, were likely a race of giants. And when the spies brought back their report, it says the people's hearts melted. They lost all their resolve. You might imagine a, a team of football players getting all hyped up before a game. Rah, 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 and then they run out on the field and then they see the other team and it's, they're huge. And they stop and stare. There's no way we're winning this game. <laughs> Might as well forfeit now. The Israelites thought there's no way that we can win against these people. And on their own, they were right. They couldn't. But let us recognize what they were doing. They were listening to people more than they were listening to God. And God said, go in and take it. And the spies said, we can't take it. It's nice, but we can't take it. Even though we may look down on the Israelites' crazy response and dump on them, we shouldn't dare judge someone before examining our own hearts. Because our own fear tends to drive us to the same place of disobedience. And then we complain. Grumble. As Wright points out, it is sadly typical that even the people of God turn on God in accusation and blame when things go wrong, when obstacles seem insurmountable, or when prolonged frustration leads to exhaustion. Maybe in the middle of pain, you've turned on God with prayers like, How could you? I don't deserve this. Why don't you care? You must hate me. Maybe your fears paralyze you from obeying Jesus and sharing the gospel with those around you. Maybe you won't leave a sinful habit in your life behind because you're afraid of what other people will think. You're afraid of the cost. Or you resist confessing the sin because you're afraid of the, the, the shame that it will cause. Or you're afraid of what might happen to a relationship that you treasure. Maybe you feel constant anxiety, constant worry, and instead of using that as an impetus to pray, you drown in it. Not all stress is wrong, but anxiety often does lead to sinful things. You do realize there's a, a biblical command to cast your anxieties on the Lord. And why are we to do that? Because he cares. Because he cares. Whenever our fear leads to disobedience, we, like Israel, miss out on the goodness of God. Imagine, just imagine, if they had ignored their worries instead of ignoring God's promises. Imagine, if, imagine the supernatural victories that God would have had in store for them to see, that they would have had all this beautiful land now for them to possess. It was ripe for the taking, like the fruit they picked. And imagine if we would listen to God more than we listen to the people around us. Imagine if, if we, in our pain, looked for the ways that God is working and moving and changing and molding us 
Imagine the dent that we could make for the kingdom if our witness was fearless. Imagine if we would freely confess our sins and find freedom from shame. Imagine how much healthier our, our mental states could be if we brought everything to God. Oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear. The goodness of the Lord is there for the taking. So don't squander it. God is good all the time. The question is, do we really believe that? Do we really believe that? Because really often our, our fears may actually betray us that we don't. Our fears are often the root of disobedience, like we just saw, but something often runs deeper even than fear, and that's unbelief. And we're going to see this principle exposed in Israel's story and then our own. We can squander the goodness of the Lord through unthinkable unbelief. We can squander the goodness of the Lord through unthinkable unbelief. After these complaints get back to him, Moses makes a valiant effort to relieve their fears and to, to save them from this path they're going down. In verse 29, Then I said to you, Do not be in dread or afraid of them. The Lord your God who goes before you will himself fight for you, just as he did for you in Egypt before your eyes, and in the wilderness where you have seen how the Lord your God carried you as a man carries his son all the way that you went until you came to this place. Now notice that Moses didn't focus on their current circumstances at all. Right? He didn't say, oh, come on, we're so close now. We can't go back now. Those, those people, they're not that big. Those cities can't be that powerful. It's like, I'm sure we could take them. No, he doesn't say that, does he? Moses' response focused completely on God, on what he had done and was promising to do. The first thing he says about the Lord was that God was going before them. Remember how someone going before us into a situation should help ease our fears? This should be all the more the case in a military campaign. Right? It's a lot easier to come in fighting behind a strong force which led the way, blazing the trail. And not only was he going before them, he was promising to fight for them. Verse 30, the Lord your God who goes before you will himself fight for you. I don't know about you, but I can't think of a better army recruit. <laughs> right, one that could swing the odds more impossibly in your favor. Who cares if they had giants, if you've got God? And this wasn't some unimaginable promise. Right? They'd seen this happen before. The Lord your God who goes before you will himself fight for you just as he did for you in Egypt before your eyes. They saw the sea split. They saw the Egyptian army miraculously drown with their own eyes. It's hard to imagine seeing something so spectacular like that and still doubting that God was on your side. It's the insanity of unbelief. It's unthinkable. And yet, have we experienced less than them? And no, we might not have seen as much with our eyes, but our stories are just as miraculous. That to have our sinful hearts cleansed transformed, our lives transformed from darkness to light. To know the, the power of Jesus' precious blood and his resurrection. 
our salvation is so much greater than their salvation. Have we so quickly forgotten? To see God so powerfully work in our own heart, in our own lives, and then to doubt Him again and again and again is unthinkable. Israel had seen God's faithfulness in Egypt. They'd also seen it after Egypt, in the wilderness. I love this picture, verse 31. And in the wilderness, where you have seen how the Lord your God carried you, as a man carries his son, all the way that you went until you came to this place. If you're around any kids in your life, you can picture this vividly. Right? Picture a little boy or a little girl getting scared by something. Maybe by a, a playful dog or by fireworks or something. And, and they bolt to their dad or their mom and, who picks them up and, and hold them close. I've got you. You're safe here. Nothing can hurt you here. It's, it's okay. It'll be all be over soon. There's nowhere in the world a child feels more safe and secure than in a loving parent's arms. Moses is like, Remember when that great and terrifying wilderness spooked us? Remember that? And it's like God picked us up in his arms. And he held us close. And then he proceeded to, to carry us across the wilderness until we reached the other side, like a young child is carried. It's like, can't you sense his tenderness, his care for us? And in the wilderness where you have seen how the Lord your God carried you as a man carries his son all the way that you went until you came to this place. We, we can probably sense a question being implied there. It's like, why would he stop now? Surely we think, surely this would convince the Israelites of the error of their ways. But no. Verse 32. Yet in spite of this word, you did not believe the Lord your God, who went before you in the way to seek you out a place to pitch your tents, in fire by night and in the cloud by day, to show you by what way you should go. See, God didn't just say he was going before them. He had visibly demonstrated it. He indwelt this pillar of cloud. You can picture a tornado. Okay? And then a pillar of fire. A fire-nado. And he moved in front of them as they moved through the desert. When the cloud moved, they moved. When the cloud stopped, they stopped. It must have been a stunning sight. And they had seen this day after day, night after night, and yet they refused to believe that God would go before them now. In spite of this word, you did not believe the Lord your God. And with that unbelief, they forgot God's presence. They missed God's power. They squandered his goodness. Let me make this personal. In what areas of life are you having a hard time trusting God? Are you having a hard time trusting God? Maybe you're having a hard time believing that He cares about you. Maybe you don't trust that He's working things out for your good in your family your finances, and your singleness, and your struggles to conceive, and your pain. Maybe 
you've grown pessimistic and jaded in your doubt, even bitter. Now, I'm not promising that taking hold of God's goodness will mean a peaceful, easy life. Not at all. But wherever you find it hard to trust God, you could, I think you can see that as your wilderness. And if you belong to Jesus, I believe that he is carrying you through that wilderness. After all, He's already done so much more than that. Right? God eventually sent His Son to earth to live among us. He, it's like He set Him down on the ground. And that beloved Son then picked up a cross and carried our sins to Calvary. Our shame, our punishment, our death. And he died there to, so that we wouldn't have to and then rose again in, in glory and vindication. We often have a hard time trusting him because we so easily forget the gospel. What he's done for us. But, if God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? May we grow to trust the Lord more every day as we joyfully worship him for this. And if you have never before taken hold of the grace of God offered to you in Jesus, I would urge you to do so today, even before you leave this place. Run to Jesus in your heart. Find his mercy. He went through the most desolate wilderness imaginable to bring you safely home to God. Don't just shrug this off, put this off, because the stakes are immeasurably high. See, squandering the goodness of the Lord will not be tolerated forever, even as his goodness continues on. That's the next point. Even as God's goodness continues on, squandering his goodness will not be tolerated forever. Consider what happened to the people of Israel in their unbelief. Verse 34, And the Lord heard your words and was angered, and he swore, Not one of these men of this evil generation shall see the good land that I swore to give to your fathers, except Caleb, the son of Jephunneh. He shall see it, and to him and to his children I will give the land on which he has trodden, because he has wholly followed the Lord. Even with me, the Lord was angry. That's Moses. Even with me, the Lord was angry on your account and said, You also shall not go in there. Joshua, the son of Nun, who stands before you, he shall enter. Encourage him, for he shall cause Israel to inherit it. Now, what we have here is this strong contrast between two godly men and everyone else. Even Moses. Caleb and Joshua. They were the the only two of the 12 spies who didn't bring back a negative report. When everyone else was panicking and complaining, Numbers records Caleb saying, let us go up at once and occupy it, for we are well able to overcome it. Moses' chief assistant, Joshua, sided with Caleb, also encouraging obedience to the Lord. And in these men... We have basically the only good examples in this whole passage. Did you catch what it said about Caleb? Verse 36, Except Caleb, he shall see it, and to him and his children I will give the land on which he has trodden, because he has wholly followed the Lord. Oh, that would be said of me. <laughs> that could be said of you. He wholly, or wholeheartedly followed the Lord. Christ's Lordship demands nothing less than our whole hearts anyway. 
By the way, the Lord's promise there to Caleb was fulfilled one day. Joshua 14 records it. The areas that the spies had explored were given directly to Caleb and his descendants. And speaking of Joshua, just like God said, he would be the one that would lead his people into Canaan. Meanwhile, everyone else was shut out of the promised land. They'd squandered God's goodness for the last time. God had seen enough. And the Lord heard your words and was angered, and he swore, not one of these men of this evil generation shall see the good land that I swore to give to your fathers. By the way, that's not sinful anger or swearing oaths. This was a pure and holy indignation. God's character, his actions, his motives, and his commands had all been doubted, denied, and disobeyed. If that didn't arouse his anger, then that would cast total doubt on his justice and his holiness. He had to punish sin. It couldn't be tolerated forever. And neither will ours. This doesn't mean that if you're saved and you squander his goodness that you're going to lose your salvation. But on the one hand, you will certainly miss out on some of the goodness of the Lord now. And on the other, you have to remember, your sin was still punished on the back of Christ. Additionally, you may yet undergo discipline for your sin, facing its consequences. Don't assume you'll avoid it. Even Moses faced the consequences of his sin. Even with me, the Lord was angry on your account and said, you also shall not go in there. Now Moses didn't grumble along with the people, but in another situation, Moses grew frustrated with them and sinned in his anger. And the Lord's words to him at that time were, because you did not believe in me, to uphold me as holy in the eyes of the people of Israel. Therefore, you shall not bring this assembly into the land that I have given them. This was serious stuff. Meanwhile, even as God's judgment and discipline fell on his people, his goodness continued. Right? His goodness continued to Caleb and to Joshua, those who had remained faithful to him. And his goodness continued also to the next generation, those who were innocent of this rebellion. Look at verse 39. It says, And as for your little ones, who you said would become a prey, and your children, who today have no knowledge of good or evil, they shall go in there. And to them I will give it, and they shall possess it. See, people had used their children's welfare as an excuse to not obey the Lord. Like, if we go in there, our kids are going to be captured or killed. They'll be prey. But in a, a twist of irony, God is like, no, actually, they'll be the land's conquerors. You won't. The, you see, the, the weakest among you, they're going to prove a lot stronger than you. A couple really quick thoughts here, especially for the, the kids who are here, or youth, young adults. Your parents are not perfect. And you will learn a lot from them, both good and bad. Guaranteed. But, you are not destined to repeat the same mistakes that they make. If God changes your heart, you can follow him wholeheartedly. You don't, you're not stuck on that same family path. Also, this verse talks about those who didn't yet have knowledge of good or evil. As an aside, that's, that's decent supporting evidence for an age of accountability, if you know what that's talking about. But kids who are here, if you now know good from evil, if you know what God desires from you, then the time for you is now to follow as well. Don't wait till you're older. Daz, 
for your little ones who you said would become a prey and your children who today have no knowledge of good or evil, they shall go in there and to them I will give it and they shall possess it. But as for you, turn and journey into the wilderness in the direction of the Red Sea. Here's a a literal turning point. Turn around, go back the way you came. Now, imagine what must have gone through their heads when they heard this. But as for you, turn and journey into the wilderness in the direction of the Red Sea. The Red Sea? That's back towards Egypt. Is God sending us back there? Well, he wasn't all the way. But the point was, they were to backtrack. They were to go backwards. To to return to the great and terrifying wilderness. And so, as George Athos points out, the fate that the Israelites feared, death without gaining the promised land, was now their sentence. Now, put yourself in their shoes. They must have been stunned, shocked, horrified by this verdict. Oh no. What have we done? We made a big mistake. So, they decided to try to backtrack their original decision, even as God wanted them to backtrack their tracks. And they decided to continue down the path of insane resistance with even more tragic results. And the lesson that they just wouldn't learn is precisely the lesson that we must. We must not take the goodness of the Lord for granted. We must not take the goodness of the Lord for granted. We have to make sure that we never take the goodness of the Lord for granted. Verse 41 starts out sounding like they finally got it. It says, Then you answered me, We have sinned against the Lord. They didn't get it. We have sinned against the Lord because they didn't get it because what they did next was in direct disobedience to their new orders. We have sinned against the Lord. We ourselves will go up and fight just as the Lord our God commanded us. And every one of you fastened on his weapons of war and thought it easy to go up into the hill country. And so they were warned. And the Lord said to me, Say to them, Do not go up or fight, for I am not in your midst, lest you be defeated before your enemies. Don't do it! Don't don't go! I'm not with you in this! By now you shouldn't be surprised at their response. So I spoke to you, and you would not listen. But you rebelled against the command of the Lord and presumptuously went up into the hill country. Daniel Block explains, what had previously been called for as an act of faith now became an act of rebellion. This was not true repentance. Because true repentance would lead to humble, submissive obedience They weren't sad that they'd done wrong. They were sad they got caught and punished. This was just regret. It wasn't repentance. And it was a sad attempt at trying to evade the consequences. Many, many people in our world believe that anything bad you do can be outweighed or canceled out by doing good things. You may think that way too. But that's 
more the picture that we get from karma than it is the picture we get from God's word. Your sin cannot be balanced out by doing enough good things. And what you need most is not a second chance. You need a savior. George Athos says this, All our actions have consequences, whether small or great, and they cannot be undone. But what God has done is not turn back the clock to give us a second chance. That would be useless, for as imperfect and sinful human beings, we would either do exactly the same as the first time, or else find other opportunities for disobedience. Yet neither has God turned a blind eye towards our sin. That would be a miscarriage of justice, and God is not corrupt. Rather, through Jesus, God has effectively dealt with our sin. And that is God's kindness that should lead us to repentance. That's God's kindness. It was too late for a second chance for the Israelites, or a third chance. But thank God it's not too late for us. Judgment is going to come one day. We've been warned. But even now, even still, his goodness is shown to us. As 2 Peter 3 says, the Lord is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. At the heart, at the heart, the Israelites were presuming upon the goodness of God. They're presuming upon it. Saw that word, verse 43, So I spoke to you, and you would not listen, but you rebelled against the command of the Lord, and presumptuously went up into the hill country. They thought, now we agree with God, it's going to be easy to take the land. Surely if we show him our, our good intentions now, our good motives now, he'll honor that. He'll go with us. But it is sinful to presume that God is somehow obligated to us or to our behavior. He's not. You cannot manipulate God to bless you by what you do. He sets the terms. We don't. And the Israelites paid dearly for taking God's goodness for granted. Verse 44. Then the Amorites who lived in that hill country came out against you and chased you as bees do and beat you down in Seir as far as that's a vivid picture, isn't it? I don't know if you've ever seen someone chased by bees before. They're running, screaming, flailing, swatting, getting stung, right? If I let one bee loose in here right now, a lot of you just freak out. I know that. But this says that as the Israelites went to war, they turned tail and fled so quickly, it was as if they were being chased by a swarm of bees. They, they beat an immediate retreat. And even then they were beat down, it says, and scattered over a distance of what was 70 kilometers. And so the, the chapter ends on a tragic note. Had they finally, finally learned. Verse 45, And you returned and wept before the Lord, but the Lord did not listen to your voice or give ear to you. So you remained at Kadesh many days, the days that you remained there. They hadn't listened to God or to Moses, so God now turned a deaf ear to them. And they now remained at Kadesh Barnea in the same place for many days. They're stuck there. Chapter 2 picks up with them heading back to the wilderness, tails between their legs. 
Now, anyone who thinks God was too harsh here obviously hasn't been paying attention. Or worse yet, you may, you may assume that God should show mercy no matter what. Be careful. You're not in a place to judge God. And he will have mercy on whom he will have mercy. So, new generation. Let's learn from their mistakes. This story stands in Scripture as a warning for all. You ask, how do we not take God's goodness for granted? How do we not do that? It, it may be easier than you think. If you have been given His grace, if you received the grace of Christ, be beyond thankful all the time. Be thankful. And if you have not yet received His mercy, don't mess around. Get serious and repent. The book of Hebrews references this story, this event in Israel's history a lot. And in one powerful passage it warns us, Take care, brothers, lest there be any of you, in any of you, an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. What I gather from this is, we all need to be careful and examine our hearts and our motives and ask God to purify them. And we've got to keep spurring each other on in holiness, away from sin. And we've got to hold on to Christ for all we're worth until He returns. Praise God that He's already gone before us in so many ways. And that no matter how hard or how much we hold on to Him, He's more so holding on to us. He's carrying us. Even now. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, would your grace and kindness and mercy that has been displayed so many times in so many ways be the motivation we have to follow you. Move in us now. Change our hearts. And thank you. Thank you for holding on to us even when we can't hold on to you. You're so good. We praise and thank you in